Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. They're not used to providing that much media access. And I like the role that I can have. I live in New York and I do go to Europe to do magazine stories on clubs and players and managers. But I'm still sort of viewed as like a special occasion. And I, I feel like if I lived over there and they saw me more often, I wouldn't be viewed as such a special occasion. You know, the club really opened their doors for that week. And, and for me, it was just a, a fascinating experience interviewing all these people over there. None more than than Xavi, but like there were several people from Cesc Fabregas to other other folks who, who I interviewed for that story in Barcelona. In 2012, Grant Wall wrote a profile piece about FC Barcelona for Sports Illustrated. It was headlined The World's Team, and for it he was given unparalleled week-long access to the club's new training facility. This was FC Barcelona in 2012, basking in the afterglow of their memorable Champions League win at Wembley the previous year. Wall watches every training session, soaks up the spirit of the club, and conducts memorable interviews with Gerard Piquet, Cesc Fabregas, and Xavi. The Xavi chat, Grant reckons, is in his top five interviews ever, such as his level of access that then-manager Pep Guardiola does a double take at one point as he comes out of the dressing room to find Grant interviewing one of his players on the sofa. A brilliant sports writer, a brilliant piece, and this is our conversation. We're talking about 2012, Barca are on the back of three Champions League victories in six years, Wembley the, the previous year was perhaps the pinnacle. In terms of timing, is is capturing and bottling that moment in, in real time very important um, from from your perspective to try and catch the wave of that story if you like yeah I thought the timing was important and you have to also understand that at Sports Illustrated which has been the US national sports magazine since the 1950s um, and I've been there since 1996 the the change in the editorial approach toward the sport of soccer football has completely changed since I started. 21 years ago, and it was almost impossible to get anything on soccer outside of a World Cup in the magazine for many years for me, which was a little bit frustrating. But then things started to change slowly over time. And I went full-time soccer in my reporting in 2009 simply because there was finally enough demand from my bosses to cover the sport full-time. And one of the first things I wanted to do was to have a series of magazine stories that would also have an online component that we called Inside the Super Clubs, where I would go and spend a week at some of the biggest clubs in the world and get a, a chance to to really understand what the club was about. And there would be a big magazine story involved. And then the week it came out, we would have five individual stories about other things connected to the club that would come out online. And the clubs themselves 
you know, Barcelona was sort of an obvious choice at that time, perhaps, to to go and spend time at that club uh, just because they were doing things that were very special, you know, as a team and winning. And so one nice thing is, is that Barcelona, like a lot of other top clubs in Europe, they want to be bigger in the United States. And I try and leverage that as a, a journalist to get the best access possible. And so they, I, I proposed uh, this idea to the people of Barcelona. They were into the idea. And so I went and, and spent a week there just really getting a, a full sense of the club and the people and the history uh, and the present. That's interesting. I mean, in terms of the, the type of piece that it is and that Sports Illustrated trade in, I guess really what you're looking for is something that has a timeline quality to pull together a piece that still reads like a you know a moment in time whenever you read it and it was quite interesting going back and rereading it uh, several times recently and it doesn't feel like an old piece you know it feels like a, an important document um, about that club at that time and was that the, the the type of thing you were aiming for with this with this piece and with the series in general well one thing that I talk about with uh, other writers at Sports Illustrated, like Brian Strauss, who's a terrific soccer writer who focuses on United States topics. We talk about wanting to write stories that people are going to remember. And you can't do that with every story, especially in today's modern media landscape where there are clearly demands to produce a lot of content, especially in the digital realm. And I get that. Um, And yet there's still... A desire on the part of Sports Illustrated, on my part, on other writers at Sports Illustrated to really produce stories where you're kind of in, in a baseball metaphor swinging for the fences, uh, right. where you're, you're trying to, to write something that will hold up. And we don't always succeed. I don't always succeed. And there's even parts of this story. I love doing this story in Barcelona. But, you know, when I I look back now and the start of it is Sandra Rosé, who is the, the president of Barcelona. And I thought at the time he represented and I, I still think this, that he represented something about very particular about Catalonia and how Barcelona fits as a club into what people think of Catalonia. And that's a that's a timeless topic. And so that ended up being a scene involving him speaking to the the youth teams of Barcelona and, and you know chanting uh, Visca Barça, Visca Catalunya in that opening scene. Unfortunately, Sandra Rosé has turned out to be a total crook. Um, <laughs> and so for me, I, I you know what there's not much I can do about that, no, obviously. No, uh, but and, and I still think he represents Catalonia. You know, quite convincingly in the in the story, but I, there's a bit of a cringe on my part seeing that his name in that story. <laughs> but I, I think, in in journalistic terms, of you're observing a scene where the, the president of the club is, you know, leading the youth players in a chant of Visca Barça, Visca Catalunya. You can't walk past that scene. You have to document that um, at, at the time. So it's <laughs> it's fair game, surely. <laughs> and you know, I also like. <laughs> back at that story and and they're not used to providing that much media access they do occasionally but not very often and i like the role that i i 
can have. I live in New York and I do go to Europe to do magazine stories on clubs and players and managers, but it, I'm still sort of viewed as like a special occasion by them. And I, I feel like if I lived over there and they saw me more often, I wouldn't be viewed as such a special occasion and I'd be viewed maybe as somebody that they wouldn't sort of want to give as much access to. But, you know, the club really opened their doors um, for that week. And uh, and for me, it was just uh, a fascinating experience interviewing all these people over there. None more than than Shabby, but like there were several people from Cesc Fabregas to other other folks who who I interviewed for that story in Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, I think the access side of it is really interesting. And I was going to ask you about how amenable FC Barcelona were, but I've heard you talking in the past about how in some ways you're you're able to wield the, the, the lure of the states and the lure of the Sports Illustrated brand within European football because clubs and players are interested in raising their profile um, in the States. Yeah, and, and I've tried to do what I can to sort of leverage that from a, a media perspective over here. I would love to be in Europe every week doing uh, doing magazine stories. It's not as often maybe as I would like, but when I do go over there and when we do cover soccer and Sports Illustrated, trying to, to get as good of access as possible and you know present the U.S. market to them is, I think, smart, I hope. Uh, it's certainly uh, been something I've tried to, to do over the years. We have interesting standards sometimes if over here in the U.S. compared to parts of Europe in terms of access um, in our sports. And that's just the traditions of mm-hmm. sports journalism over here maybe developed a little bit differently. It's always interesting when I go to a place like Manchester United and it's very difficult for anybody to get access to anybody at that club, including the U.S., by the way. But here in the U.S., you've got you know access to NBA teams before and after games, access to NFL teams, baseball, and even soccer over here. There's just more of it. And, and I think there's a bit more of a trust at times between those covered and those doing the coverage that certainly helps helps me do my job. And that doesn't mean that I'm not tough on people I write about occasionally, but uh, there are times when I feel like when I've been over in Europe and seen how, how tough it can be for a daily sports journalist access-wise where I'd be like, wow, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can could do this there's some fantastic voices in that piece and i think the the level of access just pops out when you read it um the pk stuff chavi stuff fabregas really fantastic conversations you managed to have with these guys how did you find them did you find them all forthcoming was there any in particular that that stood out for you you know all those guys were were really engaged and thoughtful in the interviews the PK interview and the Fabregas interview were in English. The Xavi interview was in Spanish, which I do speak, which is helpful. And you could really get a sense of what Barcelona as a club means to these guys. And, you know, from a guy like PK, who, you know, was a member of the club from birth and whose, whose family members have been active in the club, for him to be such a a prominent figure as a player in that club is is fascinating for him to talk about the rivalry with Real Madrid because when this story came out it came out the week of a Barcelona Barcelona Real Madrid game mm-hmm. and, um, and so I did a separate online story just on PK and his approach to the rivalry and you know Fabregas was a guy who had been one of those kids who had you know come in a taxi 
to every day to train at La Masia uh, as a youth. And, you know, the, you'd still see that, those those taxis that the club would pay for that were there just waiting to take the kids back to their homes in the region there every single day. And, and the interview with Shabi is, is still one of probably my favorite five interviews I've ever done, just because he was so passionate about, in his words, sort of fighting for the soul of football. Yeah. And he really felt like the style that they played was something that was bigger than sports in a way. It was part of Catalan identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just to have that discussion with him, it, it was just such a, a pleasure. I think we talked for 20 or 30 minutes, but I could have stayed there for four or five hours. Yeah, that's interesting in itself. I, I was going to ask you about the, the length and nature of these conversations. I mean, were you able to, to sit around the table with, with these guys or was was it trying to grab them at the end of training sessions? I mean, uh, what kind of environments were you were you managing to, to talk to them in? Well, I want to give some credit to Chemi Torres, who's mm. the international press head for Barcelona, because he helped create a situation in which we could have meaningful conversations during these interviews, that these were not sort of hastily arranged. We're standing up in a mix zone, and we and these guys are moving through for like two minutes, and they're giving a soundbite. That was not the case at all. In fact... The location of these interviews with Fabregas, with PK, with Xavi, all took place right next to, on a couch, right next to the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And to, to the point where I got the sense this wasn't typical at all because Guardiola was still there. Mm-hmm. And Guardiola's policy, and, and this is a bummer for someone like me, has always been not to give one-on-one interviews unless he's contractually obligated to it. He feels like he has to talk enough to the media at his regular press conferences that he, you know, like he, he has some occasional exceptions. There's a wonderful book by Marty Paranow. But I remember during these interviews where we were literally just having coffees on the couch right adjacent to the dressing room, you know, Guardiola sort of walked by and gave me this quizzical look about like, <laughs> who is this guy who's in the dre- basically in the dressing room? And I really appreciate Chemi Therese going to the trouble to put me there and going to bat for me in a way that I have no idea. Maybe he caught some static from Guardiola for having mm. an outside that that close to the inner sanctum. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I think to, to elevate a, a piece like this, a story like this, it, it takes a, a Chemi Therese just just walking away in the background and facilitating. Um, otherwise, you're left feeding on scraps, and and the piece you know suffers because of it. But I, I wonder, in relation to the presence of Messi, who's a he's a kind of overarching presence in the whole story. Was there ever a possibility of of sitting down with him at any point? Um, and if not, how close did you get to him? Were you able to observe him training and going around the, the training base? And uh, did you draw anything from that? You know, when I look back on the story, obviously I asked to sit down with Messi. And there was some back and forth. And eventually he decided not to. I think he had just done an interview for a U.S television channel for ESPN and I think his people thought well we've sort of done our, our United States quotient for a while um, so I, I was bummed out about that obviously I've since done a, a lengthy interview for a cover story with Messi who's a better interview than he gets credit for I think but uh, once I found out that I wasn't going to get Messi and I wasn't going to get Guardiola then it became 
okay, let's accept this. I still want to do the story, and I still think we can do a very interesting story. And I felt like it worked out. You know, when you write a, a big magazine story, there's always, or you do an interview, there's always things that you're going to think about. Man, like I wish I had done this better. I wish I had asked that question, and I didn't. And and yet, I've been doing this long enough to know that you can still do something good, hopefully, and and potentially memorable, even if you don't get every little thing that you want. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In terms of the time you spent around the, the training base during that week, I mean, were you able to observe training, um, observe the players going about their business? I mean, how, how close were you to the, the, the action as it unfolded? Yeah, I observed training sessions. You know, I came out to La Masia, that opening scene of uh, the night when they had all of their youth teams and, and uh, women's teams as well in one place because I think they were shooting portraits of all of them. And so uh, that to me was, you know, I, I remember interviewing people from inside La Masia, which since then has actually slowed down in its production of transcendent talents, mm-hmm. which is a, a completely different story. But but speaking to to them about how they went about the day-to-day on the education side, on the, the development side, playing-wise, you know, that was really something I wanted to get into as well. And so it's the kind of thing where you need to be there for several days. And if you're kind of in the culture of the club for that long, and I talked to a historian of the club about, you know, what how things went in the 20th century and the history of the rivalry with Real Madrid, it's, there's so much to write about. And it is difficult to write about Barcelona and Real Madrid without angering somebody. In, in writing about that rivalry, but I tried to to do as do it as well as I could uh, and as accurately as I could. Yeah, uh, going back to the quality of the interviews, particularly with um, Xavi PK Fabregas, one of the things that that really struck me, and I've been lucky enough to be around um, Xavi and PK through some of the stuff we've done with Graham Hunter over the years. They're obviously very intelligent and perceptive guys. But they seem to have an appreciation of their, or an awareness of their moment in the history. You know, the, the fact that uh, even though they were living through this extraordinary time, very often athletes don't have that perspective that, you know, this is where this is happening in, in, in terms of sporting history. But I thought through through the piece that their voices come across quite strongly. They do have that awareness. They, they do realise 
that what was happening at Barcelona at that time was something quite extraordinary. Is that something that came through from your conversations with him? It did. And it's so hard sometimes when you're, you know, kind of living it to either take things for granted or to, to fail to realize that what, what you've just seen or what you're experiencing is, is truly special. And I think they had an awareness of that. Uh, now keep in mind, this wasn't just with Barcelona, but with the Spanish national team, those guys, you know, 2008, 2012 European champions, 2010 World Cup champions. That's pretty rare in uh in world soccer and so the the feeling that they had inside the group of barcelona uh inside the group on the spanish national team i think there was a real pride involved in that and and i think one that's why i was that's why i was there in in large part and I think there was a feeling, you know, like it, it, it's nice when you're not just talking about the day to day in an interview with somebody that, yeah. you know, yeah. you can actually put this in a in a in a sort of historical context of this is what was happening between 2008 and 2012, and you know, we were able to 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 communicate that and, and put it out there. One of the sections that I really, really appreciated was the the stuff with Steve Nash, the the legendary basketball player, um, and he says, you know, n- not that the Chicago Bulls weren't fun, but this is something else, and and that gave me a lovely perspective on how it was viewed in a, in a sport, a global sporting context, not just in a football context. I, I just wondered, like, in terms of the motivation um, from yourself and providing that perspective, were you was that maybe to signpost a US audience by, by putting the, the, the bar, uh, Barca beside the Chicago Bulls just to, to try and contextualize it in that way? A little bit, you know, like it's always a challenge when you're writing for a big US audience of how much am I writing for hardcore soccer fans in the US? How much am I writing for more general sports fans in the US among our readership who may not watch Soccer week to week, but love watching the World Cup, which was now, which is now a, a big time event in the United States, has been for a little while. Uh, and you have to find that balance without being, you don't want to be insulting. And you know, I, I remember just yesterday, you know, Italy failed to make the World Cup and I'm listening to national public radio here and their correspondent says, you know, Italy missing the World Cup is like the New York Yankees missing the baseball playoffs. And that's completely wrong. Actually, it's much, it's a much bigger, more historic deal than that. And so I, I think sometimes in, in journalism here in the U.S. and sports journalism around soccer, too often we try and dumb it down and, and put things in U.S. terms. But I thought that Steve Nash quote was really insightful on his part because here's a guy in Nash who is a two-time most valuable player of the NBA who is a hardcore soccer fan and has spent time at Barcelona, been in training sessions, visited Thierry Henry, um, who has a, a, an appropriate understanding and respect. And I wanted to get his voice in there. And if I thought that was not dumbing it down. I thought it was not insulting to soccer fans, but also might bring in and put some historical perspective on what Barcelona was doing yeah, at that yeah, time. For, somebody who, for a reader who doesn't watch every week. Uh, I, the, the headline of the piece is, is fascinating as well, the world's team. 
I mean, I think to some extent the, this global footprint of, of European clubs has become something of a cliche. But I mean, to quote from your piece, you, you mentioned that uh, when Sports Illustrated conducted a Facebook survey asking users to name their top sports moment of 2011, Messi's Champions League final performance received more first place votes from the US than the champions of the NFL, NBA and NHL. In New York City's Times Square, chances are you'll see as many Messi Barcelona jerseys on people as the shirt of any other athlete. Uh, Barca's Facebook page is 35 million subscribers, more than any other sports team. I mean, that that, that actually blew me away, that section. Um, w- were you seeking to, to convey the kind of global scale of, of not just FC Barcelona, but also this Messi phenomenon as well? Yeah, I was. And I happened to live in New York, so I had a pretty good understanding of how big, how big soccer has gotten here uh, already. Uh, New York is a wonderful soccer city. And there are people all over this city who support um, and follow soccer in a bunch of different countries. You know, it's just a, a very global soccer fandom here. And, you know, I keep getting asked this question for decades now, you know, when is soccer going to make it in the United States? And for a while now, I, I've been telling people, like, it's already made it in many ways. Mm-hmm. And no, it's not the NFL. Nothing is. The NFL is the biggest single entertainment in the United States ahead of the movies in terms of just raw money uh, involved. But uh, but the growth of soccer in the U.S. has been absolutely astonishing to me, uh, having followed it now for so long. And, and we've been there for a little while. I mean, this story came out several years ago, but even by then, it was... Soccer had had made it uh, pretty big here, including Barcelona. I love the I love the headline. I think the the world's team beautifully encapsulates that aspect of the story. Um, I, I wonder how much work goes into trying to to get these iconic headlines. I've heard you talk in, in the past about the LeBron James cover story, and I think the the headline was the chosen one, and then. Further down the line, LeBron ends up getting a the chosen one tattoo. Um, can can you speak a, a little bit about that? About how much goes into that trying to to get that iconic phrase, which which best reflects the story? Well, I, I mean, I give some credit to the the editors at Sports Illustrated um, for you know, that's one of the big things that they do uh, is to distill the meaning of a story into something pretty. Pretty short uh, on a headline, you know, and that LeBron James cover, that was a cover of a magazine and he was a high school junior. So he was only about 16 years old. Nobody had heard of him really nationally. And the idea of putting James on the cover is an editorial choice that was a pretty big risk because chances were he wasn't going to be the chosen one. And he ended up being that. And there's certainly plenty of examples over the decades of people who were promoted in that way who didn't make it, but I, I was glad to be associated with that one where he did. And in this case, too, I thought this was um, this was a good headline. Uh, and, and yes, we probably stood to you know make unhappy a little bit Manchester United and Real Madrid, uh, but uh, but that's okay. You know, I think it held, it held up pretty well. Yeah. I just want to finish up by going back to the start, the start of the piece. And I, I really loved your, your opener. It really sets the scene beautifully. And I'd just like to read it out. It says, The Hogwarts of sports is a sparkling steel and glass building in San Juan Despi, a sleepy suburb not far from the Gaudi bejeweled centre of Barcelona. 
On a starlit night with breezes blowing in off the Mediterranean, the teams of FC Barcelona's youth academy descend in waves of yellow onto a manicured practice field. I, I thought that was a beautiful way into it. And I, and I, I know that the, the way into a story is something that you think and reflect about a lot. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that generally in, in, in the context of, of this piece as well? It, it's astonishing still to me how much time I can spend on an opening paragraph or an opening section compared to the the rest of the story. And it's not like I'm not caring as much for the rest of the story. It's just that the decision that you make as a writer on an opening scene or something to put the reader there. Uh, I took a, a writing class in, in university uh, that was taught by David Remnick, who's now the editor of the New Yorker magazine, one of the great magazine writers and editors of all time. And the guy who usually teaches that course is John McPhee, who's one of the great fiction or nonfiction writers of all time. And I remember in that class, McPhee came in to visit Remnick's class once and, and gave a three hour sort of presentation on how he approaches structuring a magazine story uh, or a chapter of a book and just talking about how much effort and thought went into all of that stuff and him saying that the opening to a story should be like a flashlight that goes through the rest of the story. And I've tried to approach it that way in magazine stories to really spend time to think about how how am I going to get into this story? Is it going to shine a flashlight through the rest of the story and what you go on to read? And then once you decide how, you know, what you're going to lead with, just word choice. I mean, like, like it's it's a it's a real process. I am not the I'm not one of these writers who can just crank something out in a short amount of time. And so I remember on this story really spending a lot of time trying to decide how am I going to approach the lead to this and then writing it. And it's uh, it's a pleasure to have the time to be able to, to do that, especially in today's media world. But it's also very fulfilling when you're done writing. I, I, I always say that I don't really, if I'm being honest, enjoy the process of writing. It's really hard for me. But I love being done. And uh, and when I was done with that story, I felt good about being done. I mean, as I say, I think the, the whole opening paragraph is, is fantastic. But I think the first four words, the Hogwarts of sports, um, deserve to be <laughs> almost drilled, drilled down into a little bit. I mean, it conjures up this kind of magical landscape producing these little footballing wizards. And you must have been you must have been pleased with, with yourself when you come up with that, Grant. It's it's so weird that the process and that's just like a once you sort of decide I'm going to leave with a scene from La Masia, that's just like pacing around for me like a room for hours and hours and having something sort of get in your head and you're like, oh, you know, but like all of the things that get discarded before you get to that point. There's so many things. I almost wish I had a record of all of the different, you know, other options that I had. Um but uh, I remember once that got into my head, I'm like, that, that's, I think that's my way in. Thanks to Grant for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with Grant on Twitter at Grant Wall. If you like this, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you've read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email Backpage at backpagepress.co.uk.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.